0: Hello, and welcome to Veritalk, podcasting a life of the mind from the Harvard Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. I'm Nick Nardini, and I'm a graduate student in English.
1: Hi, I'm Laura Janti and I'm a graduate student in physics.
0: And today we'll be discussing whether American democracy and the market can ever be fully reconciled with a PhD student in government. We'll also be discussing We the People, the White House petition initiative that has drawn some unconventional requests from the citizenry. So the big story to come out of January's inauguration was lip syncing. Yes, there was Beyonce and the Star-Spangled Banner, but there was also President Obama. In his second inaugural address, many heard the deep-throated song of new political conviction, a reinvigorated will to fight for a progressive vision of the country muted since the Reagan era. For others, the president was just going through the motions, lip-syncing a progressive attitude without any real breath support. So while some critics scrutinize the tape of Beyoncé's performance, others ask whether substantive political debate is possible under a two-party system that takes basic principles of the free market as sacred and alterable truths. Here to discuss the question with us today is Sabil Rachman, the Lewis Fellow at Harvard Law School and a PhD student in the government department. A fellow at the Roosevelt Institute, Rachman's research investigates the tensions between American progressivism in the market, democracy, and the increasingly anti-democratic demands of our technocratic age. Sabeel Rachman, thank you for joining us.
2: Thanks a lot, guys.
0: So Sabeel, why don't you begin by describing what you perceive to be the ideological atmosphere that has prevailed in the country since the
2: Reagan era? Sure. So since the Reagan era, I think the main debate about the economic role of the state and democracy in markets really revolves around two ways of looking at the problem. Uh, the first is you know, what we might think of as a laissez-faire view. And this is what we really associate with the conservative Reagan revolution. And this view really has two points. One is the idea that the market left to its own devices is sort of self-correcting. It's the, it's the most efficient way of allocating social resources, setting prices. And the other part of that is that when we try to regulate the market, we're more likely to make things worse than we are to make things better. And so a lot of this came out of... Um, Sort of set of political, but also social science concerns about regulatory capture. You know, we had all these regulatory agencies created by the New Deal, Mm -hmm. and the fear was that these agencies are actually more likely to serve the interests of private groups, special interests, than they are the public good. So we're better off just letting the market do its own thing. Um, The other view is uh, we can think of as a technocratic or or kind of management view of the market, and here the idea is the opposite, right? It's that uh, left to its own devices, market creates all sorts of inefficiencies, there are market failures, uh, problems of asymmetric information, you know, not everyone gets a fair shake. Right. And so we want institutions that are designed to promote the public good by making policies that can help balance out the terms uh, of the playing field. Uh, the problem is that you know, that idea, that sort of economic regulatory idea which really came out of the New Deal. Um, after decades of attack and barrage, you know, from the Reagan Revolution onwards, it really sort of lost a lot of its luster because there is a real concern about how do we hold these regulatory agencies accountable and how do we know that they're actually pursuing the public good? Mm-hmm. And so now, fast forward, we have the economic crisis in 2008. Well, but so,
0: so the apogee of that situation you just described was probably President Clinton, a Democratic president, proclaiming that the era of
2: big government was was over. Totally. So so what's what's so interesting about Clinton is you have you know this is the first Democratic president to be uh, re-elected to be elected and re-elected for a very long time and um, in a lot of ways he's taken on board the conservative critique of of the state that yes big government is a problem yes we're worried about efficiency and accountability so how do we square the circle and so for Clinton the idea is um, really you know trying to find a, a middle path you've got it's during the Clinton years that you start to see a lot more of sort of deregulating, privatizing government continuing from mm. the Reagan years, but trying to find other ways, you know, public-private partnerships, uh, trying to make government m- more efficient through the use of um, um, data or market mechanisms.
0: Okay, so you mentioned 2008
2: and the financial crisis. So how did that change things? Yeah, so the crisis really brings this debate back up to the fore. Um, you know, On the one hand, you have the idea of the self-correcting market suddenly becomes really questionable, right? You, uh, For a long time in the run-up to the crisis, you had uh, academics, policymakers, all sorts of people arguing that you know one of the virtues of financial markets is that they you know you you allow people to trade freely, to um, to take loans or to to arbitrage, and, and you're going to get um, self-correcting system, right? That really seems to be not a not an accurate way of thinking about the market now mm-hmm. after the crash. So on the one hand, there's this sense that okay, we can't really. By this idea of naturally optimizing efficient markets, uh, but on the other hand, it's not clear that you know the, this worry about regulatory agencies has gone away. I mean, a lot of these same agencies that we're relying on still after the crisis to manage the the financial system. These are the same guys who went through initiate a lot of the deregulatory policies in the 80s and 90s um, and the early 2000s. You know, so how do we how do we balance that so the financial crisis i think really it it puts pressure on both sides of this debate how can we make sure that the economy works in a way that's good for the public overall when we can't really we don't really have the same level of trust as maybe we might haven't had in earlier decades in either regulatory agencies or the idea of the free market
1: so 2008 there was the dodd frank bill there was a lot of discussion between wall street and the white house and um, we we heard a lot of conversation surrounding President Obama's re-election. Do you think that there were new ideas that came up in the election debate? Do you think that Obama's re-election has signified sort of the emergence of one of these ideas?
2: Yeah, so the 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 re-election campaign is interesting, right? Because it it in a way it sort of put two exemplars of of these different ways of thinking about the world, you know, right up against each other. You have, you know, Mitt Romney's by his own admission, but also by the you know, campaign strategy of, of of Obama was to really paint him as this exemplar of, you know, Culture free market, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And then, and then you know, you had, you had Obama kind of trying to argue, run on a platform of you know, restoring the middle class, having a more a more fair economic arrangement.
0: It really was perfect in the way that it that it exemplified the debate that you've been describing.
2: Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's really interesting in that regard. The, the clash is queued up, but what's also interesting is what is left out of Of the debate we've been having up having up till now you know by and large Obama's argument was that one we need government to level the playing field to create economic opportunity but but then his his actual sort of list of things to do is a sort of familiar list of um traditional liberal causes you know education quality of opportunity what have you and what's odd is that you know Obama's got a track record already he's been in office for a while and the way he's actually responded to to policy problems like the financial crisis, he's done so in a way that shows, you know, for someone who ran on an idea of, you know, empowering the the, the, the democratic public to, you know, kind of step up and, and, and remake our world, he, uh, the way he's approached problems like the financial crisis has not been particularly democratic in the sense that what the Obama administration's financial reform package really relies on is the idea that okay we're going to give more resources more more funding, more protection to expert regulators like ben Bernanke or, or or Tim Geithner, who's now left treasury and and we're going to trust them to to serve the public good now that's a traditional idea in in, in progressive history, mm-hmm. but it's it's not quite the same idea as what Obama ran on in '8 or even in 2012 in terms of you know, his appeal to citizenship, to democratic engagement. And right. so there's a real disconnect there. Do of you course, think
1: that's uh, a disconnect because of the realities of actually getting things done in Washington? Or do you think that he there's a philosophical uh, distance between what he's saying and what he's doing?
2: Yeah, I, I think it's a bit of both. I mean, you know, certainly there are short-term, you know, tactical considerations. But, you know, when when a crisis hits or when there's a really deep challenge to that we have to overcome, I think it's revealing of what people's sort of underlying notions of uh, of how they think about the world really are and so you know in, in a lot of ways o- Obama's a very traditional throwback in in a long line of, of of progressives where yes they believe in democracy but at the end of the day they really think that policy is is made best by a democracy empowering a set of elites to run the show you know now that's not inconsistent with the idea of democracy right we elected Obama and Obama picked Geithner or appoints people to the SEC and so on so its it, there's still an idea of democracy there but but it's an idea where you know democracy has its place and once it's done its job electing our representatives now it's their job to make the decisions about what ought to be done and that's that's one way of looking at it but it's not the only way in in the history of of progressive thought that people have thought about this issue. Right. So
0: just to pick up on Laura's question, there did seem to be a tremendous disconnect between the rhetoric that Obama ran on and then the policies that he he implemented once in office. And of course, he's been criticized tremendously for the sort of revolving door that keeps spinning between Wall Street and the White House and how he really instated the exact people who caused the crisis into the regulatory positions meant now to forestall future crises. So. What what do you think was going on? Was was Obama's campaign simply
2: disingenuous in its rhetoric? Right. I I don't think they were disingenuous. I mean, I I I think in many ways it's an example of just how thin our our national discourse is about what it means to be a democracy. I mean, Mm -hmm. for a country that sees itself you know sees democracy as its birthright, it's really kind of uh, alarming how how little faith we seem to have as a as a society in in the idea of democracy. So, you know, Obama's uh, Obama's vision of democracy, it's, I don't think it's it's meant to be deceptive. I I just think it's very simplistic and maybe not so attuned to what we the realities of the day. It's basically this idea okay, we have elections and in elections everyone should participate the way we would think. And once we've had an election, then the people who are elected Make policy, and if you know you're an ordinary citizen, your job is basically to um, to vote and to you know knock on Congress people's doors mm-hmm. or pick up the phone and call them and you know kind of harangue them to do what you think is right. Now, there's nothing wrong with that idea of democracy, but mm-hmm. in a in the modern world where so much of public policy happens long after the election. Beyond the reach of ordinary citizens to even make their voices heard, let alone have real accountability over what what is going on, you know, not only in Congress but also in in what happens after Congress passes a bill. Right. That idea that you know the electoral process, the lobbying advocacy process, is enough to make this a meaningful democracy seems kind of far fetched.
0: So we've described the situation as it stands. Could you look forward for us and, and, and tell us what an alternative uh, version of American democracy might look like?
2: Yeah. So part of what i work on is you know to look forward it sometimes helps to look back if you compare this vision of democracy that i've ascribed to obama during in the pre new deal era you had a lot of debate about what democracy should look like in context of the modern market this is say, similar to today you had a lot of people concerned about large corporations about economic instability uh, financial crises and yes there were people who were arguing for the kind of democracy that obama represents you know You elect a president who then chooses policymakers who can then be smart people and do what they think is right. Uh, But there was another wing of the progressive movement that saw democracy as much more decentralized and participatory. And for them, the idea was that you really want to, as much as possible, put citizens directly in the business of making decisions about how society should run. And that doesn't mean they're going to always make the right decisions. But it does mean that they have the experience of running their own society, and over time, you hope that people learn and learn how to how to experiment with different ideas and how to talk across different ideological divides.
1: So, when are when are you talking about here?
2: So, if you think about 1910s, 1920s, you know, people like Louis Brandeis and and John Dewey and Jane Addams, I mean, there's a lot of. Uh, a lot of great reformist energy during that period. Did
1: their ideas gain traction? Was there was there a period in which they got some version of the democracy they were after?
2: Well, so a lot of things that we now take for granted as part of our democracy came out of the Progressive Era, so the direct elections of senators on substantive things like the income tax but also party primaries and the fact that city governments in most areas have the the power to make some policy decisions of their own. You know, independent of what the state or the federal government does, a lot of those came out of efforts by progressives to try to build institutions that would allow people to have a more direct role in in decision making. So that's what happened before. Looking ahead to to your question, Nick, um, there are a lot of opportunities for what we can what we can do looking forward. You know, we have uh, we have a lot of you know institutions, whether it's you know regulatory agencies like the SEC or uh, local governments, you know that. Have a lot of policymaking power, and you know, there's there are ways that we can experiment with opening those up to mm. to citizens more directly.
0: So. Isn't one thing that's come to light in a very forceful way since the financial crisis the degree to which the complexity of our financial system is so far beyond the comprehension of any one individual and certainly beyond the comprehension of the average American citizen? Uh, You know, one thing that people love to discuss is the fact that the famous Glass-Steagall Act was something like 12 pages long, whereas the Dodd-Frank Act is, you know, however many thousands of pages long, right? Wouldn't a criticism of this idea be that the current reality of the financial system is simply too complex to invite democratic participation.
2: Yeah, I mean it, it is really complicated I think that's it's a fair it's a fair argument. But on the other hand, I mean a lot of things are complicated, right? And we and we make decisions about complicated stuff all the time as as citizens and as and as a country. So, I mean I think the 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 response to the problem of complexity isn't to wall away citizens from the decision making. It's to find ways that we can integrate citizen engagement with expertise, which has a place. I mean, you know, someone who has experience in the hedge fund industry or researching sort of how to regulate um, subprime mortgages, that's valuable stuff. And they're citizens too, right? So it's not that they should be excluded from decision-making. But at the same time, the expertise by itself can't answer a lot of the questions that we're trying to answer when we're making policy, because there are technical aspects to policy, but every policy decision also has moral aspects where we're making decisions about what kind of society we want to live in, right. what kinds of activities we want to promote or, or deny. And you know, when we're talking about moral issues, it's not clear that you or I are any better or worse at Making moral judgments than you know someone who's and has two PhDs, or than Tim Geithner, yeah.
1: So I have a question. We're talking about two different ideas here. We're talking, in one sense, about what a democracy looks like and how people interact, but we're also talking about an economic system and how much regulation. And we've talked about both of these in the context of progressivism. But in, in my mind, they're they're uh, they're separate issues. Are they? Does progressivism uniquely link them, or you know, does conservatism also have two ideas of democracy and? are they the same?
2: Yeah, so I mean, right, so there, there are two different things going on here. Um, in terms of, uh, so one one way, to, one reason why I think the sort of laissez-faire you know, free market view of uh, that a lot of conservatives have is so compelling, actually, is that it speaks to both of these questions about what the economy ought to look like and what a democracy looks like. So if you think about the, the free market view, the, the answer to the economy question is, a good economy is one where the market corrects itself. And we let the market decide how to allocate social goods. Their answer to the democracy question is that uh, a good democracy is one in which uh, there is uh, as little as possible sort of special interest influence on on society on on the government and that's an argument for why you might want to deregulate so so that let's say Fairview, it sort of attacks it comes to the deregulation free market idea from two angles one is that that's what that's what a good economy looks like and the other is that's what a good democracy looks like one where there is few opportunities for special interest corruption or influence so
1: that means fewer elites so that's that's the counter of the obama yeah
2: so it's it's a, i mean there's there's a real sort of a small d democratic almost populist aspect to the the laissez-faire view i mean it's we are all equal and in the market we're all equal right we're all consumers or producers and once you set up uh in, in their view once you set up a a government regulatory system now you're inviting the danger that some people are going to be more equal than others. Right,
1: because you're inviting certain experts to decide what is regular. You're
2: inviting certain experts to decide, but also you're inviting the risk that those experts might be deciding on the basis of influence that other people in society might be able to curry, you know, curry favor with them. So, Sabeel, what are some
0: concrete measures that you would like to implement or experiments you'd like to try for expanding American democracy
2: today? Sure. So um, it's actually a pretty exciting time to be thinking about these questions because there, there are a lot of small-scale experiments that are already out there. One which I'll, I'll mention comes to mind is uh, there are a number of American cities now that are starting to experiment with um, a process that's called participatory budgeting. So New York, Chicago, um, a couple cities in California now. And this is actually something that's been tried and tested in developing countries already uh, in several different contexts. And it's only now making its way to the US. But the basic idea is, okay, the most fundamental thing that a government does is decide how to spend its money and that 's a complicated process, but if we spend if we put some effort into creating a, a system where citizens in the, in the localities in the neighborhoods that they 're living can actually come together and discuss amongst themselves what they think the big concerns are, where they think money should go, and cook up proposals with the help of experts and and advisors, uh, but really being driven by the residents in the neighborhood thems- themselves, you can actually come up with a pretty decent budget that reflects the priorities of the people who actually live in these towns. It's not easy, it takes a lot of work, but there's something very exciting about this idea that yes, given the right structure and some little bit of effort, lay citizens without a lot of formal training can actually come up with policies that could work for them, and, and then in the process you make the whole, you know, the whole, the whole governmental uh, approach, you know, more transparent, more accountable, and more legitimate. You know, and then and then you also at the same time have a lot of people experimenting with, um, using ways of using technology to to help this as well. You know, making government more transparent and trying using technology to kind of engage citizens. So there there are a lot of things that are that are going on out there. But I think the the bottom line for me is, you know, I don't know which of these are necessarily the best, but I think that's the conversation that we need to have.
0: So speaking of technological innovations to expand American democracy, it's time for us to shift to our fluff topic. In September of 2011, in in an apparent bid to improve popular access to the highest levels of the government, the Obama White House launched We the People, a website on which citizens could launch petitions which, if they passed a certain number of signatories, would guarantee responses from the executive branch. Like most experiments in internet democracy, this one went slightly awry, and petitions were soon going up for state secessions, the deportation of particular political pundits, and even the construction of a Death Star, as in a Star Wars Death Star. In response, the signature threshold was raised from an original five thousand to ten thousand, and now it's twenty-five thousand. So, Sabiel, I wanted to begin by asking you: Is this a meaningful contribution to democracy in America, or is this sort of a vapid
2: PR stunt? Well, you know, I I I might have voted for the death star project just for kicks. But um, no. I mean, it's it's really interesting. I mean, it is meaningful in the sense that even the fact that this system exists is a pretty big change in how government officials, I think, think about their relationship with uh, the public. Having talked to some people who are involved in sort of open government efforts, I really appreciate how uh, much of a lift it is for them to even get a system like this, to find ways to Encourage this kind of input and then to respond to that. So the fact that it exists is is definitely progress. Um, Laura, I think you do you have the list of the most popular? (laughs) Yes. So
1: I printed out um, as of today the most popular petitions. Um, The the number one with over 300,000 signatures is to legally recognize Westboro Baptist Church as a hate group. Mm. So this is a church group with about 40 people um, in Kansas who are very anti gay, anti Jewish. And they actually have several, there are several of the top 10 petitions in support of uh, either removing. Their credibility, or recognize them as a hate group, which I think is quite interesting. Um, there are also some slightly more entertaining ones. One quite popular one is uh, recount the election, make unlocking cell phones legal, uh, repeal the Defense of Marriage Act. So some of them are more serious than others.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so it's interesting you, when you see the list. Uh, definitely, people are are using it, right, and are taking it taking it seriously. But um, it is progress. On the other hand, though, what I think what this system shows us is that you need to do a lot more than just creating a website and inviting comments. Mm-hmm. Anyone who reads the comments on any internet blog post will know, right, yeah. that um, yes, that creates input, but it's not always the most productive, constructive, engaged form of, of,
0: of input, right? The, the YouTube comments section is almost a perfect demonstration of why the Greeks didn't trust democracy, right? Because right. if you let people run free, you end up with, with that kind of nonsense. On
1: the other hand, if you look at the number of likes or dislikes that comments get, you do seem to, see sort of sense coming ah, out again. So an and almost people,
0: market-based correction. Exactly. The there are, of- people
1: tend to only sort of support things that either make sense or are very funny. And I would have guessed that the same thing happened with uh, signatures and that huh. therefore the government is either having to respond to things that are actually legitimate issues or like the Death Star, just pure entertainment. Right.
2: Yeah, I mean there's there's a there's a great literature and and now about sort of the wisdom of crowds right and this question of whether when you open it up to sort of this voting up or down with a sum it actually does have some sort of Way of sorting out, you know, really valuable comments or, or mm-hmm. these funny ones from, from, <laughs> other valuable from other ones. Or funny. Um, yeah. yeah. So, Which is maybe as much as we can expect from American democracy <laughs> at this moment. Right. So, so there's there's a lot of that. But but just the, the last point on this is, I think, um, the strengths and weaknesses of this kind of commenting system just points to why we need sort of a much more innovation in this, in this space, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, we can put out for comments, but, you know, can we come up with ways that we can actually engage people face-to-face around, you know, concrete problems in places where they, communities that they actually live in are part of. And that gives you a very different kind of conversation that I would think is more constructive and more engaged than you know shooting off an anonymous comment over the internet. Right. On the
1: other hand, I think it's very important to have some sort of way of contacting the federal government and saying, hey, this is an issue that I think is really important. Can you envision anything that might be better than, than this system?
2: Yes. Yeah, so, so I mean, I think that's totally right. That's one, one of the values of, of this system. Um, I'll mention two things on the federal government side. I mean, one is that the regulatory agencies we've talked about in the beginning, they're doing a lot of the you know rubber meets the road policy decisions. And there are actually a lot of ad hoc practices that they use to try to engage the public when they're trying to make those policies. We could do a lot more of that and, and make that systematic and make that much more robust. The other thing is that, you know, I think it's, we should think seriously about what things the federal government should do versus what things should be done at a more local level where, you know, it's a big difference my trying to walk up to, up the steps of Congress and, you know, shake my fist at my congressperson versus, you know, going down to Cambridge City Hall and knocking on on the door.
0: Well, Sabil Rahman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Aydin. Thanks, Laura. Uh, Laura Janti, thank you so much.
2: Thank you,
1: Nick. Thank you, Sabeel.
0: So thanks also to our producer, James Brandt, and our guardian protectors in the GSAS Office of Communications. Veritalk is made possible with help from the Harvard Media Production Center, and our theme music is by Domenico Vicinanza. We'd love to hear your comments or suggestions for future guests. You can reach us at veritalk at gmail.com or find us at facebook.com slash veritalk. From all of us at Veritalk, thanks for listening.